podcast ain't played with nobody. Maddie, do not bark it. Do not keep this in, Bill. This is how we're gonna start the show this week. You just want your phone to ring right now because I just I can. The dog is aware of UPS. I swear to God, Maddie, just because it's the off season doesn't mean you can pull this in the first five minutes of the show. Oh man, I'm back. I'm healthy. Um, I I appreciate everyone's well wishes. Last week was pretty <laughs> rough. Um, I did get a lot of col- uh, comments on a, on. I think some people said smoky, sultry, sexy voice. Um, while a couple of those are uncomfortable, I do appreciate your well wishes. I am back to somewhat relative health. Um, if you must know, still coughing some things up. It's very lovely. Um, I'm back at Opryland in Nashville for the NCAA convention this week. I'm not with my pal Bill Connolly. Um, it is a terrible, terrible convention, not even comparatively. Obviously, football coaches are fun, but, man, the NCAA is boring. It is awful. What are you doing right now, Bill? Um, I, I'm, I'm sitting in my office. I don't even have a dog down here this time. We, uh, she's at the groomer currently. Uh, All the off-season vibes. Because we have we have dogs who need to be groomed, so no, I'm down here by myself. You know, I, I miss Opryland. Opryland was uh, even you know, I, I at least know where stuff is now. It takes you like a week, a full week to actually figure out how the hell to get around in that compound, uh, and now I, I have that knowledge and I don't get to use it anymore. This is podcast ain't played nobody. This is a college football marriage of numbers and words. He is the robot Bill Connolly. He invented the S and P Plus analytics system. He is the proprietor of SB Nation's football study hall. He is the author. A little book that's coming out in March called 50 Best College Football Tees of All Time, asterisk. Asterisk. Uh, my name is Stephen Godfrey. I have to put on a suit today. I am not happy about it. But it's not a court date, so that's okay. Um, I'm just going to strike through my opening notes. We have, no longer have a GoFundMe program again. We thank you very much for your donations. I have yet to figure out how to shut the thing off, so we've had a couple zombie donations, so great. I appreciate that, but you don't have to do that. Um, we've asked you for your money to fund Bill's book. We've asked you for your money to help charity. We're not going to ask you for any money, at least for a little while longer. Um, this is going to be an all mailbag show with the exception of maybe a brief mention of some minor items that we're working on right now. As we are thrust hard into the off season, Bill. Oh, connotations. I just want to make sure you're going with that. Okay. Well, I have to earmuff so much for the. For the uh, mom and dad driving crew, the uh, like like our carpool quotient of listeners, I figured innuendo is okay. Um, we are in the off season. We are yet to hit National Signing Day. Uh, I'm still trying to. I will be on a campus. I'm still figuring out which campus. I am just writing things here and there, just like you're writing things here and there. Um, we're still recovering. I feel like you are working on the 100 best games of the year. I did a quick yes. news hit on trying to explain and understand what happened at Cal with Sonny Dykes because that was the, we think, last uh, fire hire of the college football cycle. Unless something really, really strange. I should, I, why even say that? Why did I say that? Yeah, seriously. Well, okay, okay, here's, here's the question. And I asked you this on the show before. If, if you have an Art Brile situation somewhere this year in like April, is that mm-hmm. a 2016-17 firing or a 2017-18 firing? Well, with Bryles, since it was like an interim situation, um, I would say that probably counted towards this year since Grove was just a placeholder, mm-hmm. um, a caretaker, as they would say in English soccer. But, so um, would you say, in the passive sense, fired after the 2016, or 2015 season or fired before the 2016 season? What do you think? What's in the parlance? I, I think technically it'd be before the 2016 season, 
but okay. uh, caretaker exceptions and just the fact that I mean, we can we can pretend the carousel's over because you know, regardless one way or the other, it's ninety five percent over. So hey, know, uh, brief aside before we get into one hundred best games. Uh, I am locking up a location to be at for National Signing Day. It's very funny. Certain coaches uh, extremely um, interested in having media coverage on Signing Day. Some coaches very much not so. And it really doesn't correlate with how well they're doing in recruiting. Some schools that recruit very well, very efficiently for who they are and what they do, even some top 10 schools, don't want to blow it out and turn it into this crazy showcase affairs. Some coaches want the exact opposite. They want as much pomp and circumstance in February as possible. Um, last year I went to Penn State I've covered James Franklin for a long time that was not my first choice you know where my first choice was? do you remember the pitch that I wrote and I told you about? Uh, no no I do not that would be, the, that would be one Art Bryles in the Baylor Bears specifically <laughs> writing about right. specifically right. writing about wide receivers and running backs and some sort of thing with uh Fortified relationships in Texas high school and how they were continuing to beat out people in recruiting because when I wrote the pitch, they were doing extremely well. They did pretty well last year, but also Texas didn't – remember how Texas like came on late, like horror movie villain right. last second late? Um, that hadn't happened yet. So when I wrote the pitch, right. so it looked like they were going to beat old Charlie out again. Um, my how times change – uh, let's see if I have that rejection letter. I'm just gonna, or, or that email, basically saying that's not a good idea. We're not into that. Yeah. So one of the things I've been doing this week to kind of prep, uh, because season's over, that means it's time to start talking about the preview series for 2017. Yeah. One of the things I've done. Um, so I, I've kind of updated the data, updated my little my templates and whatnot. Uh, and then I started looking at what I did last year in terms of content. So last year there are three ba- there are three main pieces that go into the projections, the 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 S and P plus projections. One of them is uh, you know kind of that five year history. It's weighted, but there's a five year history piece. Um, there's a recruiting piece, uh, and there is a returning production piece. So I'll have all that again. But it was funny going looking back and and seeing the piece on recruiting about how Baylor more than any other team has really improved in terms of. You know, in terms of two and five year recruiting, um, you know, compared to what the, you know what it was to what what is becoming Baylor is a team on the rise. Uh, yeah, so this stuff doesn't age very well sometimes. January six, two thousand sixteen. I'll I'll omit who I wrote this to. Um, I don't even know if they worked there anymore. Uh, my name is Stephen Godfrey. Blah blah blah. I won't give away the secrets of my good pitching ability. <laughs> Baylor is at the top of our list right now for possible signing day coverage, specifically because I've had conversations with former Baylor players from five and ten seasons ago about the development of the skill position talent and the base level of player that's been brought into the system year by year. Uh, man, I really laid it on thick in this pitch. There's a chapter in Coach Browles' book, which I read writing another feature a, a year prior, uh, that deals with this. Basically, I'd like to expound on the idea of Texas football reawakening wide receiver talent in the modern post-two-back era. Jesus, Stephen. Um, I'm available to talk to this pitch, blah, 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 blah. Then uh, never got a response. Now, I had heard that they weren't necessarily the most welcoming, but Spencer Hall, um, our editorial, I don't know what. uh, Director. Okay. Um had been there. We had done stories. We'd worked with Baylor before, so I didn't think it was a necessarily like Iron Curtain situation. Repitched it. Hadn't heard anything. Um, they actually, they told me on January 20th, hey, this might work. And then, um, let's see. Pitch, pitch, pitch. 
this is not the sort of thing Baylor typically participates in, so do not hold your breath. Uh, because I, here's why. And I'm just going to take everybody completely behind the door on this. When I got into the details, people always ask, like, how do you get access to certain places? You have to negotiate all this stuff out in advance. If you're not just a reporter showing up for a press conference, if you're going to be behind the scenes, this is all negotiated. It's built, It's either built on relationships you have already. So if I go see, like, I don't know, Tom Herman or James Franklin, a coach I've worked with before, That's there's a certain level of comfort there, right? Or a school that I know. Like, I right. know the University of Cincinnati and their administrators very well, so I'm sure at some point I'll go see Coach Fickle. I don't know him that well. I've interviewed him a couple times, but there's a level of comfort there, right? So you have to negotiate all this stuff out. I start saying, hey, I'm going to be around the coaching staff behind closed doors, and whoop, that wall went straight up. <laughs> Man, it was unbelievable. Um Maybe this isn't as interesting radio as I think it is, but um, to, to look at this email exchange from – this goes from January 6th until January 26th when I bailed out and I ended up at Penn State anyway, which at the time we thought was a total loss of a move because they were getting <laughs> waxed by Michigan in recruiting. And then on signing day eve when I got to State College – by the way, State College in February, magnifique. Um, they lost a DB or a wide receiver to Pittsburgh. Yeah. So it was like super downtrodden, like, yeah. And I remember thinking like, all right, well, you know, I I knew Coach Franklin, so I'm just going to, we'll just play this out. Oh, well. I remember when the feature went up thinking like, it didn't even run. I think it ran like a couple days later because I took my time writing it, um, as I do. But it was like not fun, not, not a good time. And now I go back and look at that, and I mean, it just... I'm not saying there's some sort of like blueprint for them going to the Rose Bowl in there, but you do see him. You see Franklin making some classic like pull it out of the rear end kind of like proclamations and you know all of his all of his like media mojo stuff. You see it; it actually pays off against what they did this year. So it made me look real smart. So yeah. if people don't listen to the show, and you see me on, or if you listen to the show, you see me on Twitter, and I say stuff like I knew all along. You have to play along. So if you listen to the show, you can't call me out for my stuff on Twitter. All right. So if I if I say I'm prescient about teams, you guys who get the who get the inside scooper, you can't you can't call, don't embarrass me is what I'm saying. Be cool, or I'll stop doing the podcast. So uh, I just pulled up that that uh, story that you wrote. My Google my Google game is very very strong. I think. Um, Would you write Godfrey Espy Nation? That's what I always do. Uh, let's see. It was this in this case it was James Franklin Penn State signing day Stephen Godfrey. Um, that's pretty strong, pretty strong, strong search term on there. Appreciate that. So, um, I, I, so, okay. So this is not something I plan on talking about at all, but this morning we were talking a little bit about Auburn, um, and, uh, in our Slack room and, and, mm-hmm. you know, who, who, who Malzahn might end up hiring as OC and everything. And I, I, I'll just say this, um, fit matters so much. Like I, obviously recruiting rankings matter. I use them in my, projections obviously they matter and obviously they give you more uh margin for error they they you know you have to hit a certain bar to be able to succeed at the highest level of college football obviously yes but i I think malzahn to a certain degree has chased recruiting rankings and chased specific talent 
to his detriment because it ends up not fitting what he wants to do. And he, he seems to be in this weird situation right now where his base intentions go against what his current best quarterback, Sean White, can do and what his future potential transfer, whatever starting quarterback, Jared Stidham, can do. Uh, Garrett Stidham. Jared. Garrett. Jared. Garrett. Jared. 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 You take a year off and... Jungle. And Jack. About you. Jimmy. Um, so, so it becomes a very odd situation where, you know, great, you, you secured this talent, you need talent above all, all else, but then you don't, then you struggle to figure out how, how to build a system around it. And some guys are very adaptable and some are very, um, you know, have a very clear idea of what they want to do. And if you're in the latter boat, you got to figure out the fit situation, um, and so it's, I'm, I'm really curious what, what, how Auburn fares moving forward. Obviously, you know, uh, Malzahn's been around long enough to, uh, you know, he's, you know, in high school or wherever else. Like, he, he's run past heavy systems before. Great. But it, it seems like his base intentions are not necessarily uh, aligned with, with the talent he has uh, compiled at Auburn or continues to compile. So it's really weird. I'm really curious about what he – what hire he ends up making there, who, you know, if he trusts that new person to still call plays in the end, it took him a long time to get to that point um, with the last guy. So that's an odd situation, but I do think, you know, Penn State is a really impressive, interesting model right now of of fit. Like, yeah, they, they lost some recruits, but they still hit, like, what, 15th, I think, in the, let's see, uh, in, in last season's 247 rankings, they were... 20th. Okay, so they were 20th. They got one five-star kid, four, four, or seven four-stars. They were right in between Oklahoma and Miami. Um, and, you know, it, you know, he, he had better classes than in the past. Obviously, guys like Barkley weren't a, a part of that class. So, you know, he had plenty of star recruits in the, in the pipeline there. But I, I think if, if you end up losing a few spots, but you end up finding the right pieces, or if you end up losing your – defensive coordinator but uh, you know you you make the right hires to replace you know he lost two guys on offense or he got rid of one guy and he lost a guy on offense who had been with him for a very long time uh but then he went out and got joe moorhead which was kind of a, a weird creative uh selection um i i was just i mean he, not he a, but, the but not a sexy one not not no, one not where the fans got excited not one where where the old the, the Joe Boss and State College were were fired up, guy turns out to be one of the hottest head coaching candidates in that in, yeah. I say region, but I mean the entire Big Ten and the entire Northeast. That's a lot of the United States. Um, he was I mean, he, a huge success at Fordham, but was in no way, shape, or form uh, a celebrated hire. So right. we always your- have this list of guys who are like, you know, the, these are the, the five hottest offensive coordinators that everybody want, needs to try to get, and Moorhead wasn't on that list. So, um, so the, the whole, the quote-unquote big splash, yeah. whether we're talking about recruiting or hiring or, or, or whatever, he didn't make it at all. And he, he still got, what, Sanders? Was that the five-star kid's name? Um, who played a little bit of a role this year. But, I mean, they just uh, fit matters, and, and the, the actual – uh, guys you bring in matter, even if they're not necessarily the biggest names on the board. So uh, that's my advice. That's that's what I say to everybody who's not going to sign a top five recruiting class this year. Fear not. I'm looking uh, you at can still do great things. Looking at the longest tenured uh, FBS coaches right now, and of the programs that compete for national titles, do you know what sticks out? An ability to adapt and then yeah. transition out of multiple coordinator hires. 
<laughs> yeah. The top yeah, of this I mean, list. That's, that's... The, the gray beards are Kirk Ferentz and Bob Stoops. <laughs> Until proven otherwise, I don't consider Iowa to be in the same class as Oklahoma or the class of, no. of teams that would compete for a national title. Uh, but Bob Stoops has – this is the sort of blueprint now. Right, he's on Lincoln Riley. Lincoln Riley's a guy who I would expect. Um, man, I think I heard this twice at the convention last week. That this would this is a guy that is a twenty maybe maybe eighteen maybe twenty nineteen head coach and a really good job. Not not necessarily like a, a starting at the Sun Belt kind of level job. Um, let's see here, Gary Patterson. Hmm, just lost Doug Meacham. <laughs> Right. Well, we'll see what we'll see what the only the, the solo Sunny Cumbie era yields. Gary Patterson's been at TCU since two thousand. Um, you go on down the list, and with the, there are some weird exceptions here in some schools. I'm not mentioning, obviously, like Rick Stockstill's been at MTSU for a long time, but oh, yeah, yeah. You know, Pat Fitzgerald at Northwestern, and how they always tout they never lose an assistant. But again, the schools that are up here that are national title contenders, they are able to hire well, survive survive eras and not live and die. So how does this relate to Auburn? I think what I look at in Bob Stoops that may work for Gus Malzahn is the ability to bring in a voice that isn't necessarily in line with your own. Because if you are still, if you're getting, if you're, hmm, diplomat, uh, if you're high, if you're <laughs> aggressively encouraging Rhett Lashley to take another job, or Rhett Lashley feels that he has to take another job to get out of your shadow, and you bring in another guy who's off your tree. What is that telling people? What 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 difference did you just make? How are you changing? How are you changing positively for the future? How are you selling this to recruits? By the way, um, so it doesn't necessarily have to be a guy who. I mean, is he going to bring in a? No, he's not going to bring in a triple option OC or something. Although I mean, he does. You know, it's funny I would use that. Just kind of pulled that out of my rear. But there's a lot of option concepts in what he does. But Maybe I should revise that and say he's not going to bring in a Stanford coordinator. <laughs> no. He needs to find someone who who can take the talent, exploit the talent, do something a little different for the future, and then still be able to work within the, the larger confines of what Gus wants. And really, this isn't on the coordinator. I feel like it's on Gus. Yeah. How do we get here? By the way. By the I way, haven't answered a single question. No. Um, by the way, I'm, I, I don't... Um... Let's see. Do I get the code? No, I don't. So at some point, I'm going to put together a list of of people on Rick Stockstill's coaching tree, <laughs> because while he has not, uh, while he has clearly not competed for a national title at Middle Tennessee, the number of coaches who have gone through Murfreesboro, uh, especially between like you know 01 and 05, when you had like the Blake Andersons and the what was Buster Faulkner, one of those guys, like a ton of offensive minds, but then also Manny Diaz. Um, so many guys who have gone on to, to become relatively, you know, at least big names at the, at the mid-major level or the coordinator level uh, worked in Murfreesboro under, under Rick Stockstill. So that's, you know, you have that to look forward to in the offseason. Maybe that's, that's for Conference USA week or preview time uh, on PAPN. Uh, but look forward to a big a, a big lengthy uh, dissection of Rick Stockstill's coaching tree because we know what everybody wants to listen to. Mm-mm, content. All right, we said we were going to get into the uh, the questions, the mailbag. Yes, we should, uh, we should probably do that. Man, I hate that word, mailbag. <laughs> um, it is awful. Um, do you want to start? Or do you want me to start? 
Uh, other than manipulating the Hawaii question, we got into me taking a trip to Hawaii. I don't have a, I don't have an agenda. Um, you guys have been really good with questions. I asked you once last week in my fever, and then the, once the show before that to keep us propped up through signing day and through the into spring practice with questions. Uh, for those of you who are new to the show, as in like they, you jumped on board during the season, uh, we're diligent and really revel in the off season. But it's definitely more your show than it is ours in the off season. It gets a little tricky sometimes. Uh, let's start with with our friend Robert Baker. He sent us some questions before. Sent us one six days ago. Hi, Robert. Uh, but, hi, Robert. Bill, Bill and Godfrey, congrats on reaching the goal with the fundraiser. I know we've been talking a lot about week one last year and some of the marquee games, um, Bama, USC, Ole Miss, FSU, Notre Dame, Texas, and how to frame them for what happens over the rest of the season. We can see a great game and have it mean nothing or a mediocre game that sets the groundwork for our season, but there has to be some credence laid to the fact that week one is always going to be a weird combination of teams that are the perfect combination of healthy, excited, and not quite gelled as a system yet. Mm -hmm. So my question is, what tools can we best use to properly frame week one or week two results in the context of the entire season? Obviously, each game still counts for a team record, so we can't only give half a win, but we should be able to properly say who a team is without needing caveats like neutral site injuries and a new coach. Also, do we have any ideas for how long it takes for certain pieces to establish themselves? Quarterback, line, coach, defensive scheme over the season. Yes. I know this is ambiguous and a little scatterbrained, but I feel like there's an interesting discussion to be had here, especially when you look at USC, Alabama, and Notre Dame, Texas, in contrast. Well, Notre Dame... Also, P.S. By the way, P.S. from Robert. uh, With this being about the one-year anniversary of this becoming the official Purdue podcast, how can we properly memorialize this? I don't know. We need to do that because we started... The the whole Purdue thing actually started... I just remembered this because I was doing the podcast from State College. So we're not there yet. It's two weeks. Okay. That was the last time I was at Penn State. Um... I have shirt ideas and we we haven't really followed uh, on. We got I know. We got to do some work. Um... Okay, well, first off, uh, the context in which we talked about USC and Alabama and then also Notre Dame and Texas are very different. Notre Dame and Texas were, um, I think their flaws were apparent in that very first game. It, it's just that we didn't know yet. Flaws are flaws are visible. We just don't know which ones are um, isolated, which ones are incidental, which ones are, a pro, are, are specific to the opponent, and which ones are systemic. So um, Notre Dame and Texas were two fun but flawed teams that where the flaws only widened in different ways throughout the year. That's still a really fun game to watch. Everyone's making a, a joke about Notre Dame, Texas now. It, it was one of the most watchable games of the year. Yeah. Um, USC, Alabama, case study in, in, in completely different states of a program when they met. Um, I think, and, and I mean, you know, Helton didn't pick the right quarterback. Um, that much is clear. Not that they would have... One had uh, Sam Darnold been the guy from day one, but you know clearly, if Sam Darnold had been the guy the guy from day one, they don't beat Alabama, but I think they beat Utah. Yeah, yeah, I, I can probably see that. You know, maybe he gets a little plus. I mean, they just they were a bounce away from beating Utah anyway, but sure. they probably beat Stanford. Yeah. Uh, so Man, they lost you, know, I, you know, wow, what a year! Yeah, that's right. Um, no, I mean, and that's it's. Uh, there's no good way to contextual like we can't just simply say you know here's how we're going to look at week one from now on because there's always the whole point of week one is that we're missing context i will say like if we if you know the the maybe the best thing to lean on and this is me you know um 
you know, promoting myself, I guess, but the, the preseason rankings, even if S&P is not your bag, um, those preseason computer rankings are grounded in the context that actually matters. Uh, and it would have told you like, well, first of all, it would have told you that Notre Dame's probably going to be pretty good this year, which technically they kind of were, they were just good enough to lose to a whole bunch of uh, decent teams by a touchdown. Um, but they, you know, they would have had Notre Dame a little bit overrated. They would have had Texas pretty much pegged. Texas pretty much achieved what it was supposed to achieve this year, if you look at the preseason projections. And week one would have, would have simply told you, hey, maybe Texas is a little bit better than they, we thought they were. Not Texas is back. Holy crap. Bouchelle's going to win the Heisman as a freshman. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da. It would have said they beat a pretty good team uh, at home uh, in, the, in the last minute or in overtime. And that was it. That was the context you would have gotten. And that would have been the, the closest thing to correct content uh, context as possible. Um, but, and, and Ole Miss FSU would have kind of been the same thing. Ole Miss was another one of those teams that was good enough to almost beat a bunch of good teams than not um, until, until Kelly went down, obviously. But uh, Ole Miss FSU would have told you the same thing too. FSU was a top, projected top 10 team. I think Ole Miss might've been too. So that was a little off, but it would have told you that those were two high quality teams each going on big runs and then FSU winning. Bama USC was the weird one because of the quarterback situation. But I mean, I think the bottom line is the whole point here is we're missing context that we don't know ahead of time and we have to find out what that is. So let's just be entertained early on uh, and maybe not, maybe not crown Shane Bouchelle, the 2016 Heisman winner right off the bat, but um, I stand by that. It can work out. Maybe uh, just, yeah enjoy enjoyable football and try to glean like 1% of, of actual legitimate information from it and just enjoy yourself. That's, that's, that's what I say. Hey guys, Alex Noor writes, not sure if you have a PAP in email or just email you here. Uh, we don't. And I was about to compliment all of our listeners who managed to get us questions because we are stupid enough. Uh, we lose the force for the tree so often on this, on this fine audio radio program that we have never given out an email. I give out our Instagram and uh, Twitter information, but I've never got an email. So you guys are just smart that you figured that out. You found our emails, I assume, on the SB Nation site. Um, you guys asked for more questions in the last pod, so here goes. I'm a Mountain West fan, San Diego State, and it seems like the Mountain West has one of the weakest brands in terms of quality of play versus viewership. They're pretty much regarded as one of the top two G5 conferences along with the American, but across the college football landscape, it seems that the Mountain West is an afterthought, save for Boise. Even when the Mountain West had BYU, TCU, and Utah, it felt like the conference was a bit of an afterthought to casual college football fans compared to the WAC. How do you think that the Mountain West could build its brand to attract more attention and viewers? Obviously, getting off CBS Sports would be a good start. Oh, Alex, you're pandering. Um, I think the Mountain West is in a good position being one of only two FBS conferences in the Mountain Pacific time zone and should be able to leverage that into more money and exposure. You go first. Yeah. See, I mean, yeah, CBS Sports is... Um, Ass. I, Ass. I, you know, I, I love that it's on TV. Like, I love Ass. that I can speak it out. But you just, uh, you aren't getting much out of that relationship right now. So that has to change either. CBS Sports needs to do a better job of... Uh, neither of, is the viewer. Of, of existing and being a, a legitimate, uh, secondary, uh, sports network, or they need to find somewhere else to go. Like the, the TV money, the, the revenue that you're getting in the mountain West stinks, uh, the time slots you're getting stink and it just, you know, stink, stink, stink. It's, it's just not a very good deal. So it's hard to, if it's hard to find your product, 
then your it's going to hurt your brand. And I think it's probably as simple as that. And I mean, being in the uh, one of only two in the West, yeah, you can pretend that's a good thing because you know of scarcity or whatever. But it's also a bad thing in that there there aren't as many college football viewers out there. Um, you're not in the in the heart of college football for whatever that's worth, and that can't help. Maybe it doesn't really hurt, but it it, it doesn't really help. So um, that's my answer. Hmm, where do I start? I think that. There needs to be more of an effort among certain schools, or all schools, really. It can happen at the conference level. Um, it's rare that that happens, though, where the conference can dictate out to member institutions how, how they should embrace or rebuke media. It needs to be more of an individual effort at, the, at particular campuses. For a, a great example, San Diego State, I, I don't understand why they don't try and increase their media presence. They're, I don't know, Bill, I think I, think I tried maybe two years ago to do something with them and they weren't interested. And, you know, we were a growing site, not necessarily known nationally at the time, but they're just, San Diego State's one of those programs that just doesn't strike me as like they care. Um, and they should because they had, they had uh, uh, Donnell Pumphrey. Mm-hmm. They had a really interesting team to watch. They They've won, been awesome for two straight years, yeah. They, be, I mean, I think most people saw them for the first time when they beat Houston. And like a weird weekday afternoon bowl game. Yeah, yeah. Um, not to put the entire conference in a microcosm there, but yeah, CBS sucks. There's ways around that, though. Um, I think that they you need to blend a sort of um, the the kitsch aspect of what Maction was and is, or maybe more was than is, um, and find a way to draw people in in a, in a sideshow type of manner, um, but then also accentuate what you have in terms of talent. Um, Gosh, I'm trying to think. The Wyoming quarterback who's coming back. We just talked about him at work. What's his name? Oh, um, oh my God. Right? Catch me off guard. See, uh, it makes me feel less stupid. Anyway. It's, it's something like, I'm not gonna, Josh, Josh Allen? Yeah, I think it's Josh Allen. So yeah, anyway, Josh Allen. You need to, I, I think they need to do a better job. This is going to sound lazy and self-serving. Like, they should pitch us better in the media. Um, I think you have to close the gap with the geography situation and that most of the national media, I mean, the Pac-12 fights this all the time. Uh, most of the national media is east of the Mississippi. Um, that's a problem. I think that CBS sucks terribly. Um, <laughs> they're really bad with digital interface, as we've talked about ad nauseum. But it's up to the schools themselves to maybe not necessarily think of themselves as the Mountain West and just start doing what Boise did. So Boise built its identity long before it was a member of the Mountain West. I mean, I think Blue Turf came when they were. Was Blue Turf early? Blue Turf was pre D one, wasn't it? Yeah. No, oh, yeah. no, wasn't no, it? No, I'm I'm almost positive it was pre D one. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, it's funny, but you look at the blueprint of the schools that left: BYU, TCU, and Utah. Utah, yeah. not as much. Utah was more a. I think Utah was more of an academic side. And it was a strategy pick for, in terms of television market and a couple other things for the Pac-12. But TCU were were and are fantastic self-promoters. Chris Del Conte, that AD, is crazy about, you know, getting out there and, and you know, being the alternative in Texas for a lot of people and touting how great Fort Worth is. We need to find those stories. Uh, one school that I would think of off the top of my head is Colorado State. Yeah. They're not that far from Denver. I think it's like 100 miles. They have an ex, you, they have an, uh, you know, an ex SEC quarterback and OC in Mike Bobo, who people down here I think would still read about, especially in the state of Georgia. My God, 
Um, he's going to be up for another job, kind of much in the same way McIlwain is in, I don't know, a couple of years, I think. They um, – this isn't a good answer, Alex, but I, I completely agree with that they do have an exposure issue. It's going to be up to the schools themselves to decide that they want to do that and not have that typical stereo, you know, that stereotypical West Coast laissez-faire thing. If they want to block yeah, I mean, that boys, train, it's going to be up to them. Yeah, Boise State is kind of the best and worst thing going here because um, on one, I mean, on one hand, they're obviously the, the the marquee program, but at the same time, you know, they kind of bent over backwards to keep Boise State a little bit. I don't remember specifically what the TV arrangement is there, but they're allowed to kind of make some of their own TV money and whatnot. Um, that is not good for the health of a conference. Uh, you know, it's kind of you know whole versus some of the parts and all that. Um, obviously letting Boise control things doesn't help anybody, but Boise, but you gotta, but that's, it is what it is. You have to, like, like you're saying, you have to figure out how to, to become Boise, how to, how to promote yourself and sell yourself and all that. And I mean, the other thing here too, is obviously that Fresno state has bombed. Um, there are no, you've got air force, uh, doing pretty consistently well after kind of bottoming out a few years ago, San Diego state is peaking and there's no excuse for them not to be selling that more. Um, but a lot of programs, Fresno State, San Jose State, Utah State just kind of plummeted this year. Uh, a lot of the bottom third of the Mountain West, it's as bad as any conference in FBS. And um, that doesn't help because, I mean, obviously you need depth to kind of – that's one of the things AAC is doing better. They also don't have just a wonderful situation with TV money and all that. But they at least have a deeper roster of, of interesting teams at the moment. And you can't do anything about not being uh, east of the Mississippi – I, I mean, I guess you can start trying to pick some fights with uh, teams east of the Mississippi, and maybe that'll help in its own way. But uh, I, mean, I do you think just, that CBS is a huge problem here. Joking yeah. aside, they need to make they need to find a way to. You're not going to generate much more revenue off of whatever you've got. Okay, so Mountain West is one of those that spreads its content as far as they can. I would start looking at taking some of those. Uh, so you have first and third party rights. If schools have rights to their own games, make them free. Just distribute yeah. it. Just distribute them online to anyone. On some, go on Facebook Live, go on Twitter, uh, go on uh, YouTube. It doesn't matter. Everyone has a, a live option right now. Put the games out there. Do something ever, unique and dynamic. Did we ever see, by the way, like how those the, how those games on Twitter did? I know. No, they're kind of uh, hiding the metrics because I don't. I yeah. think there's so well. There's a lot of stuff at play there. I, I guess I'm about to unpack all that. It, it, they're trying to figure out, and SB Nation's a part of this because SB, full disclosure, SB Nation was partnered to do the Thursday night, some of the Thursday night NFL games this year. If you remember that, Bill, you and I were watching college football. Yeah, no, I, I, I have no recollection. Um, there's, they're trying to figure out what kind of revenue can potentially be generated there. So, in a lot of cases, they're either not sharing the metrics, or they're not creating the metrics, or they don't trust the metrics. I'm trying to work on a story right now with ESPN about this exact thing. About this exact thing, and it's it's funny how cagey everyone is about talking. Hey, we streamed this many people because they're, you know, the Nielsen ratings have been around for a very long time, and they're tweaked and they're manipulated in a certain way. It's because millions of dollars are at stake. And streaming is such a wide, open, kind of democratic thing right now. People don't know how to – I think people don't trust the numbers on either side in terms of the – in the advertising world. So that's why you're not seeing a lot of people tout their streaming at the moment. Um, that could change in the offseason. I think it will change. I'm looking at this roster of teams. Um, you have a service academy in Air Force. 
You have a team in San Diego State that's been dynamic and fun. You have, all joking aside, Wyoming and Colorado State. I know, obviously, I flog like Wyoming as a fan. But you have Boise, which is the establishment. You have uh, Hawaii. I'm going to do that question next, just as a nice transition. Hell yes. Um, Jay Norvell at Nevada. Tell that, like, get out there and tell that story. Get out there yourselves and tell the story. Yeah, Nevada's the other team I should have mentioned as bottoming out. They were terrible this year. UNLV hired Bishop Gorman's coach, and I just haven't, like, just get out. You have to be proactive. You have to lure people out there. Like, I think they're about to be pretty good, by the way. UNLV? Yeah. Well, I'm going to go out there then, because, like, a flight to Vegas. <laughs> no, I mean, dude, this is the behind-the-curtain kind of stuff. People always ask, like, how do you determine where you go? Looking for an interesting story? In my case, I'm looking to see what my peers aren't doing, because I don't have a brand name like ESPN across my chest. So I would go out to UNLV in a heartbeat. Hotels are dirt cheap in Vegas, and flights are like a hundred bucks. So like that, you could knock that out. You could do something interesting there. I don't know what the reception is amongst the Mountain West. I think again, some of what Alex's question is is this isolated feeling. I think some of that's self-imposed because that is a cultural norm out there. That you know, people go out into those parts of the country uh, because they're getting away. So. Yeah, right, I think, I, could, I mean, the, this is, uh, you know, ob- obviously the best prescription or the uh, the most um, useful prescription is also the dumbest, really. It's that these te- a lot of these teams need to get better at football, uh, and that solves at least a few of the problems. It doesn't solve CBS sucking. But generally, I mean, the Mountain West will be uh, – it would, would catch the AAC in terms of perceptions of quality if uh, Fresno State becomes a, a good Fresno State again. They, they, they fell apart. If Nevada becomes a fun, interesting offense again, I didn't really love the Norvell hire, but whatever, we'll see. Um, if San Diego State, as you were saying, sells itself better, because they have been a top 40 caliber team for two years now. They've been good to very good within the mid-major universe for like five years now. Um, and I do think UNLV is kind of the wild card here. Like if they were, cause I, you know, we all, when they, when they redesigned their home field and had like the Vegas stylings and all that, we all, you know, we all gave them attention. We were like, Oh hell yeah, that's awesome. I love that. And then they didn't play in a meaningful game all year. Um, they made the top 100 that we still haven't talked about, but um, they, I, I think they're pretty close to being pretty good. I think they made a good hire. Uh, they just, they need to have a battle plan for when we're good. Here's how we're going to sell ourselves. Because um, I, I, I mean, I just I really like the hire. They've got a good high school in, in Gorman there that still produces talent even without Sanchez, um, and they are Vegas and they can sell Vegas to some degree. So yeah, you need your San Diego-based team to sell itself as good as it is. Uh, you need your Las Vegas-based team to be good and then sell itself. Um, and honestly, I mean, it wouldn't hurt if Boise State actually put together a run instead of uh, slipping up a couple times each year. But yeah. that's a different story. Boise needs to get back into that bothering everyone about the playoff conversation. Um, yeah. And, exactly. and as an aside, before I jump into this next thing, it does not help that Washington is not uh, isn't open armed with the media. They're not standoffish. Yeah. I don't have a whole lot of history with them pro or con. I really like Peterson. Every time I talk to him, I think he's a really interesting guy. Um, they don't particularly welcome media in, and they're not particularly agreeable when it comes to providing players to talk to and that kind of stuff. Because the reason I say all that is I'm one of the few people, I, yeah, I would say I'm one of the few people who's not from the West Coast who works in college football who goes out and does the reporting that actively looks to do stuff <laughs> west of, like, Nebraska. I just, uh, to me, it, it's the conceit of this show. It's why Bill and I are like-minded is we want this – 
want this whole college football mania thing to be way, way more than just Ohio and Alabama, right? And I think Washington plays so much of that freaking West Coast stereotype when they do that stuff. But whatever, that's that's their that's their philosophy. And I think part of it is I think that's one of the reasons that Peterson's there. I think it drew him to that to that area and not somewhere yeah. like Texas. Dakota Moyer. Well, hold on. Yeah, I mean, I both like we've both attempted to do Washington things. I'm trying to remember if I've even ever gotten a response for for when I contacted. It's been a while since I've tried. I don't know. I feel like now if I go in, it's it's kind of it would feel rote. It's bandwagony now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Anyway, Dakota Moyer, uh, Bill and Stephen. Love this. Love everything about this question. First, first, I have to say that it's a little long because I have to read it all. Uh, first, I have to say I love the podcast. Uh, it's fine. He made a joke about Missouri in there. I'm going to skip that. <laughs> uh, I have long been interested about the state of the program in Hawaii. It seems like every year there's a new story that emerges that claims the university can no longer fund their football program and it is set to disband. Factors like finances, lack of bodies and seats, and losing records are often thrown around. Not to mention that the many hours spent on a plane for traveling to games and recruiting. In fact, if you Google Hawaii football program, the first three suggested searches are Hawaii football program ending, canceled, or in trouble. <laughs> Stole, uh, if, if, I, if I end up writing a story, I'm going to steal that as a lead. Um, after a terrible 3-10 2015 season, the Rainbow Warriors hired Nick Rolovich. I don't know, is it Rolovich or Rolovic? I don't know. Oh, an alum of the school. I've been saying Rolovich. Yeah, I'm, I'm hitting the ch- um like Chattanooga. An alum of the school, uh, Rolovich finished 2016 on a high note, uh, 7-7 record win in the Hawaii Bowl. Who'd they beat? They drubbed uh, MTSU? Yeah. Yeah. They slightly improved in Bill's numbers, going from 118th overall in S&P Plus in 2015 to 97th overall. Hey, that is... That's not bad. That's a decent improvement. You got back to kind of the, the, the mass of mid-majors there. 118th is really bad. So they with absolutely weird, With, weirdly enough, the 7th overall special teams unit. How they finish seventh real fast? Uh huh. He said that they you you had them ranked. Oh. How how did that happen? Um, keep talking and I'll tell you. All right, all right, we'll do it later. Uh, it also seems like Hawaii recognizes that it needs to schedule these marquee out of conference games, especially with teams from the Pac-12 to keep bringing in those dollar bills and to attract an audience. They opened this year with Cal in Australia, traveled to UCLA in 2017, traveled to Washington in 2019, and traveled to Oregon in 2020. Strangely, they will also host both Arizona and Oregon State in Aloha Stadium in 19. They travel to Arizona as well in 20. Uh, my question to you guys is this. Four paragraphs in. <laughs> is the Hawaii program going anywhere? It seems like the Rolovich hires brought some added enthusiasm, but it seems like a long shot for the Rainbow Warriors to get anywhere close to the season they had in 2008 when they attended the Sugar Bowl. Are they a program that is comfortable just staying put in the Mountain West for the next decade or so? Or is there a long-term hope that someday they can get into the Pac-12? Or are we destined to hear this offseason that the Hawaii football program is, quote, doomed to be shut down? Um, a lot of questions. Thank you. So first first off, um, the reason they are seventh in, in um, special teams, S&P Plus, Rigoberto Sanchez was 13 for 13 on, on field goals. If you don't miss, you don't lose any points, and uh, you end up ranking pretty well. I don't think he had the biggest leg in the world, but he didn't miss, so that kind of helps. Um, also, they were very good at punting, so they had the field position game down, and they didn't really have any weaknesses. They were in the 50s and 60s and 70s and the other stuff. So basically, not being bad at anything and not missing kicks is how you end up seventh in special teams. Um, 
Ooh, last, last question. First, are we destined to be the soft season in the Hawaii football program? No, I don't, I don't think, think so. so. It, it, it will happen, happen again probably in a year or two. Um, they, they do need to make something happen with revenue. Um, and that has more to do with um, generating revenue with, as, a, as an overall athletics program and their relationship with the state of Hawaii. So it's not something necessarily tied to wins and losses. Um, he asks, are they, are they comfortable staying put in the Mountain West? I think they're very happy and lucky to be in the Mountain West, but also they have big aspirations one day of being the Pacific Bridge for the, for the Pac-12. I don't even think that's necessarily insider talk. I think that's pretty obvious what Larry Scott's attempting to do with the rice and Stanford going back to Australia, with the interest the Pac-12 has in China as a market, more for basketball. Um, and then what they're... Their further exploration of the Pacific Rim is going to be something that can only benefit Hawaii for obvious geographic reasons. Now, as state economies go, and as academics go, Hawaii can't just waltz right into uh, the Pac-12 and be a shoulder-to-shoulder peer. Um, by state economics, I mean just, again, all the logistics that we talk about, travel and time and things are more expensive there and harder to get there and all that stuff. You know, we say this, I don't want to be a broken record, but we always talk about realignment in a vacuum of football, but you have to send your women's volleyball team somewhere. And it's going to be really hard to send an Oregon State on a Tuesday. And then Arizona the following week. Now, is it any harder to do that than it is to send them to Nevada and uh, Colorado State? No, not necessarily. Um, it's just rather, it, the, the, the issue there is whether or not the Pac-12 wants to return that favor if they feel like that's a headache. The Pac-12 is a very large part of the country in that it's a long, long way from Washington State to Tempe. And there are a lot of different and unique concerns along the way. I feel like I'm being too diplomatic at this point. But like, Hawaii's got to bring a lot to the table. I don't know how much Hawaii can bring to the table. I feel like this. If Hawaii ever ends up in the Pac-12, it would be a giant old Larry Scott Thumbprint. And what I mean by thumbprint is that it will be the bridge school for big economic opportunities in Asia and not necessarily a school that you would take because it's a natural cultural fit. And I, I don't mean to imply anything sinister there because that's exactly the same methodology that the Big Ten used to expand television markets. Maryland didn't make sense. Rutgers didn't make sense. They made sense in a television way. And that was it. And that's fine. You can do what you want. Um, Bill, as I said this, Guess what just happened? As we're recording this, guess what happened? Breaking news. You didn't think there'd be breaking news in January, did you? It must be schedules. It's schedules. The Pac-12, this is like the Pac-12 episode. Um, The Pac-12 released their schedule. I'm going to run down really, really fast and see if there's anything interesting just in terms of our listenership. Ooh, wow. Defending conference champion Washington opens on a Friday night at Rutgers. Hell yeah. We already knew about that one. Yeah, we already knew that one. Um, so really we're just looking, actually most of these non-conferences we've already talked about. Hey, Houston and Arizona, that's going to be fun and pointy. Um, Stanford USC is an early game again this year. They really try and hang their hat on that one, huh? I guess. Yeah. That, they're it trying, it they, kind of hurts them. Kind of making that a thing, basically. Um, let's see as we get there. Um, anything that jumps out? Um, yeah, here's one that jumps out. So I wrote the story about Cal this week in Sunny Dykes. I don't want to jump into all of it. Just please go click it. So stories like that can, I mean, no, I'm being honest. When I write stories like that that are super minutia laden in the weeds on how a coaching thing breaks down, um, 
if you like that stuff, reinforce it by clicking on it and sharing it and doing all the fun social media things. Because otherwise, it's just going to be hot takery. Not that that's what SB Nation does, but that's what the internet demands. So um, one of the things that Sonny Dykes was mad about at Cal was their super wonky Friday night scheduling thing that can sometimes like hit you where you have a short week going into a Friday night game against a team that's coming off of a bye. Yeah. And apparently that's going to happen again this year because I see one uh, Washington State and USC are playing on a Friday night. Washington State and Cal are playing on a Friday night. We should ask our we should ask our managing editor, Brian Floyd, how he feels about all this. Friday night again, Washington and Stanford. I I don't know how we should feel about this, Bill. We we, we really chastised the Big Ten for embracing this idea. Friday, November twenty fourth. Oh wait, that's Black Friday, that doesn't matter. There's two games yeah. there. Um there's they're, UCLA at Utah, Friday, November 3rd, they're taking good inventory and putting it on Friday night. Um, I think that's for ESPN's benefit because I think that's a direct tie to the ESPN cl- portion of their agreement. But how do we – I mean, I, I don't like this. Well, I mean, this is what ambition looks like when you when you are kind of screwed by geography in the college football landscape. And when you when you hear – when your fans have long resented how their, their teams or their star players get kind of overlooked for major awards and East Coast bias and all this stuff, then you either just try to complain about it really loud and guilt everybody into watching your product or you try to figure out when people will watch your product. I guess. Um, and so this is what you do. And, I, I mean, it's not – I, I mean that doesn't make it good, but I mean I think that's at least the rationale behind it. Right. Um, you know, so that's it is like I think there's certainly a case to be made for putting lesser games like Stan like uh, what was it Stanford USC is on a Saturday. Or that's a Saturday. Friday? That's a Saturday. Okay, okay. But you got let's see USC Washington State. You got a couple. I'll put Washington it this way: State. Stanford going on the road on a Thursday night to Oregon State makes sense. I don't know if I take UCLA and Utah and put that on a Friday. I don't think I'd put Washington and Stanford on a Friday for sure. Um, but yeah, that's but it was that's on a Friday last year. It yeah. was on a Friday last year, and I wrote a or this past season, and I called Larry Scott the week before, did a whole piece on it, and they were excited that it was getting its own little area of attention. In fact, it happened right after I did the Pac-12 replay story because I was in Baton Rouge uh, for the for the LSU Missouri game because of the whole Ed Ogeron thing and. I, we sat in a, a restaurant in Baton Rouge on Friday night, and every television had that game on. So yeah. I guess there's appeal to that. I just don't – man, I really don't want Friday night to become – I really don't want college football to be on Friday night. <laughs> but, you know, uh, if a lower-tier AAC game is on, you understand that the economics behind that. It, I, I know CBS Sports dumps some content on there. If you're putting Stanford and Washington on thinking it's going to be marquee on a Friday night, I don't like that. I don't like the precedent that that sets. I, it probably did. I mean, it probably did pretty well, though. It, it ended up being a nice mission statement for Washington this year, too. So I guess that makes sense. I do. I, I find the value, like, if you're going to do that on the Thursday, Friday, it does seem like that's a, very, a good time to put, well, California, among other teams, that your, your lesser brands, so to speak. That's your chance to get them on national television and maybe kind of cap uh, in front of a captive audience. So I guess that makes sense but no i mean this is just this is ambition and this is uh, you know to circle back to hawaii that's the you know you're hoping the pac-12 is rewarded for this ambition and, and decides to get crazy ambitious uh to the point of you know using your program as as a stopping point on your way towards australia and asia i will say this too by the way this is i, I this is not a fully formed thought and i want to um explore it a little more so last week at 
at AFCA, one of the things I kind of sat in on, I sneaked in to, to listen to, was a guy talking about um, one of the guys who kind of built the Chinese Youth Football League. Um, you know, basically, uh, China has ab- had absolutely no American football presence, so they basically started with like three-year-olds, and, and they've been slowly building up into kind of more and more youth leagues. Now they've got hundreds of teams. They're, they think they'll have thousands of teams soon. Uh, and they're trying to build football through kind of through the kind of the back door of China, uh, in part because um, China identifies all the potential uh, major Olympic athletes at like four, and then leaves everybody else to go study. And um, they, so they're using all that, that big pile of kids who had been left behind. Um, they didn't have you know the right dimensions to be a weightlifter or a swimmer, so therefore they were left on their own. They're kind of trying to capitalize on that, and now they're actually getting somewhere. They have like a little arena league. Um, and, and we were just laughing I, uh, yesterday or the day before about the, the names of the professional teams in China now uh, that are just tremendous. Um, the, the, what you got? It was, the Combat Orcas, I believe, was one of them. That's um, pretty good. They have a – here, I'll pull it up. But they have a uh, – I mean, they, there's actually a professional league in China, that they're, and they're trying to move in that regard. Um, while I pull up that list, I'll mention that when I was watching Hawaii in the bowl game, it hit me that the smartest thing they could possibly do, um, and maybe they, maybe this is just impossible, and that's why they haven't done it. But they, Japan has had a college football league for a while. The Japan uh, American Football Association, I believe, oversees everything, like college, pro, um, uh, junior high, I believe, like all the way through there. They they kind of all are tied together. There they have a bowl game each year that pits the college champion against the pro champion. But I like if you're Hawaii and it's it's even the slightest bit feasible. Maybe it's not feasible at all. But if you're Hawaii, like tap that, like go there and try to get a couple of of good Japanese college football players. Um, <laughs> try try to get like try, try to get Larry Scott's attention, the the attention of Larry Scott's most ambitious crazy side, uh, to try to dip into that market and be the team that you know if you're a if if you're a Japanese uh, high school player and you're uh, looking at playing college football in Japan and they have a decent, I mean, uh, you know. I don't know where to put it in, you know, whether it's like Mountain West level or like whatever D two level. But I bet there are a couple players that could probably fit in your program. Like, go find them, tap that market, and be as attractive as possible to Larry Scott. Um, so th- that's my advice here. But damn, where did that go? USC, by the way, starts the year with four home games. Nope, three. Sorry, I counted the spring game. FBSSchedules.com. I know they listen to this podcast. Do a better job designating what a spring game is. <laughs> three. Yeah. They start off with three home games: Western Michigan, Stanford, and Texas. They put Stanford right really early. I just yeah. don't know if I'm selling that game as hard as the Pac-12 thinks they should sell it. American Football League of China (AFLC), the Beijing Iron Brothers, like it. The the Chengdu Panda Man, which has an angry panda as a mascot. It's beautiful. Uh, the Chongqing Dockers, which I enjoy, but is probably not the kind of Dockers I'm thinking of. The Shanghai Fudan Dragoons. The Canton Apaches, which we'll skip right over. Canton Tigers. The Hefe Crocodiles. The Shanghai Titans. The Shanghai Nighthawks. Shanghai has three teams. Four, four teams, the Shanghai Warriors. Well, that makes the, sense because they're in... Uh... That's that's a highly Americanized part of the country, and and, and Shanghai has approximately four hundred million people. Um, 
The the best of all of them, the Hong Kong Combat Orcas. Yeah, the, your first one was the best one. The Hong Kong Cobras, the Hong Kong Warhawks, and the Chongqing Centaurs. So that's just go, skipping right over the Apaches. That is a, a lovely list of what? 13 out of 14 teams. Uh, lovely, lovely nicknames, lovely mascots, lovely. Uh, they, they're doing all the things right now. We'll actually see if they can actually, you know, produce football. Something tells me the protest for Native American representation will fall on deaf, deaf ears over there. Um, <laughs> Oregon schedule. Tricky, secret tricky, on the surface seems manageable. By the way, what are we, I know you haven't done the preview yet, but let's just say hypothetically in a world of six and six for Oregon, because mm-hmm. Taggart usually kind of eats it his first year. You start off with Southern Utah, you go to Nebraska. No, Nebraska comes to you, then you go to two Wyoming. Tricky, tricky, right? At ASU, Cal at home, Wazoo at home, at Stanford. You close out at UCLA, Utah at home, at Washington, Arizona at home, Civil War. I think I see five for sure. Man, I kind of see, I kind of see two for sure wins, two for sure losses, and eight games that will be decided by whether they're like a top forty team or a top sixty team. Yeah, I'm gonna go back and say I see four for sure. And for sure, even feels like I'm on loose, loose ground. Southern Utah, for sure. Yes. Um, I feel like, Arizona, I, I feel like the Arizona issues are going to extend into 2018. Okay. 17. 17. Um, so let's let's give them a W there on the back end. I feel like they will beat Oregon State. That Oregon State should be quite a bit better next year, but you would assume at home. Yeah. Um, so yeah, three or four pretty solid wins. And then um, probably against Cal, first-year head coach, Probably. So there's the four I was thinking of. And then Wyoming, I I mean, it's in Laramie. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Nebraska, Wyoming, at Arizona State, um, at UCLA, Washington State at home, Utah at home, all of those are winnable and losable. Um, Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Going to figure out what his floor and his ceiling is real, real, real fast. Um, Pretty high and pretty low. Or pretty low and pretty high. Colorado loses a bunch. I know that. It's going to be interesting to see... Is everyone just going to forget? Is it just going to be a thing that it was like, it was, oh, it was such a 2016 thing, you know? <laughs> maybe, maybe they, maybe they taper off dramatically to the point where, you know, how people talked about like USF and Kansas and you would just instantly think of 2007. Maybe that's, uh, maybe that's Colorado football. Maybe they recede for another eight years. <laughs> Sorry. If anyone's listening. Um, Ouch. Um, oh, Bill, let's do one more question and get out of uh, here. Cause I gotta I go to the NCAA convention floor. Yeah, I'm helping you stall, and you're welcome for that. Um, yeah. J. Mark Carlton, uh, off-season PAPN. We didn't quite get to all these, but we have plenty of time to get to the ones we didn't get to. Um, Bill and Steven love the podcast. You significantly improve my commute with every podcast release, and I appreciate you very much. I very much appreciate you for it all. I try. So much so that during the depressing descent into the valley of no football that is the off-season, I re-download and listen to reruns of the show. I highly mm-hmm. recommend it. I highly recommend it. And pairing wow. with episodes of other podcasts for the same from the same week enhances the football memory. The memories football weeks past uh, shutdown wow. forecast is great for reveling in the Schadenfreude of whatever went wrong for that uh, for some that week. Uh, yeah, I don't recommend doing that at all. But I understand. Like, if you have a commute, you have a commute, and you know, until you find other podcasts, then you know, go for it. But I I'll give you the other podcast to listen to. I mean, I appreciate that dedication. It's a little scary though. I'm not gonna lie. 
on to my question. I love the observational assertion that the, uh, that the three ways to be successful are to recruit talent, develop talent, and deploy talent. You're spot on. Thank you. Uh, my question arises from the application of this to the coaching ranks. Who is okay. the best at each of these three aspects of coaching? Oh, both man. Power 5 and G5, if you don't mind. I don't know if we'll get to that, but uh, head coaches or assistants or whatever, under the radar is preferred if for no other reason to remain on brand. Um, who are the best he, of each He of just those? gave if us homework. I know. We might have to come back to this one. Uh, if perhaps you're disinclined to name a favorite or leader in these three categories out of worry that a source will be displeased, <laughs> uh, that you didn't mention them, could, could you life. perhaps respond in terms of the opinions of the coaches and staffers with whom you spoke to at the co- coaching conference last week? That might give you some cover. Thank you so much. Go Gators. P.S. <laughs> this is, uh, we're a little too brandy here. P.S. In case you have email filters looking for these keywords, Purdue, Wyoming, Directional to Michigan, Idaho, AAC, Hampton in-house company, <laughs> housekeeping, <laughs> telemarketing. <sighs> See, this is good when you can be kind of an inside joke and kind of a jerk at the same time. It works really well. Yeah, why are you making me um, work? Okay, uh, de- uh, developing, uh, recruiting, developing, and deploying, right? Yes. Um, I mean, that one, we have rankings for that one, and they're pretty good. Um, so, you know, Alabama obviously. But I mean, you know, Saban in particular being able to do all three helps, but he clearly is a great recruiter, even though he has a great product to sell. Um, I think Brent Venables needs to be mentioned. Okay. More on the develop deploy side, although I I don't know specifically what his role is in recruiting. I I assume it's very substantial Um, to maybe try and put a bow on this episode. It goes back to what I was talking about. He's also a former Bob Stoops employee. How about that? Um, they continually reloaded on guys that were very good and sought after in recruiting. And, you know, Bud would, Bud would chastise me if I said they were under the radar. You know, they like to really play up that stuff. And Bud is always quick to say, hey, look, they raise a ton of money. They, you know, they spend a ton of money in football. They're not this mom and pop organization. But I think what Venables has done in creating virtually no drop off as they continue to produce. NFL talent uh, on a consistent basis now is pretty impressive, pretty amazing. Um, I can go with I can go with just Dabo in general, and then also uh, you know Venables and the guys on that staff who uh, because th- that is clearly the drop off thing has been crazy. They lose so many defensive linemen every single year, and they dominate on the defensive line for the most part every single year. Obviously, they they they, they struggled a little bit at times with run defense earlier this season, but I mean with a bunch of freshmen and sophomores mixed with a bunch of seniors, they you know they attacked the passer very very well. That kind of helped them win the uh, national title this year. You know what's uh, funny so. is. The, the, I think a more interesting context for this question is what gets you a job? Not, yeah. who, not who is the best in each one of these categories because what I was starting to think about was on the, talking about he asked for like a G5 and a P5. What gets you a job in the P5 when you're coming from a school that has any potential of recruiting well, so maybe like one-fifth of the group of five schools? I mean, Justin Fuente, Tom Herman, uh, Taggart. These AAC jobs become springboards only when people notice what you're doing in recruiting. You have to translate that translate that into wins, but you don't necessarily have to go twelve and zero. I mean, if you're eight and four consistently in the AAC and you're drawing attention in a particular market for what you're doing in recruiting, that is that's so much equity. It seems like on the coaching market, maybe now more so than ever. Yeah, it's so yeah, funny, I mean- like. Ed Ogeron was not ready for his first job at Ole Miss, his first head coaching job. He'll tell you that. Um, but 
that methodology for the way you know the reasons he was hired was just laughed at back then in 2005 and now it's sort of the order of the day i will say this recruiting is the fastest way to get noticed um especially like you know think about tom herman i mean it was one thing for them to go to 13 and one last year but then he got ed oliver and he signed a top whatever it was 40 recruiting class at a non-p5 um that solidified like it didn't even matter that his team kind of blew some games this year and their defense was glitchy and they nah. uh if if Greg Ward wasn't 100% they weren't a very good football team none of that mattered all that much he still got the Texas job in part because he had shown just enough game day coaching chops and he recruited his ass off and um that I mean that was it that, that was all it really took and and so I, that is the fastest way to do it. In one year, he basically established himself as the great up-and-coming mid-major head coach, and I think we agree that he's very good. But then the other stuff takes time. You got to like the, the development thing takes a long time to prove because you got to do it more than once, most likely. Um, and then the deployment side is kind of the tactical side where you have to show you can evolve over time to really like either you come either you're Mike Leach. Um, you know, either you're, you're on the forefront of some uh, new offensive scheme or you just show the ability to adapt with college football's changes over a longer period of time. And uh, so of those, I think recruiting is, is clearly the most short-term way to get a good job. And if you're a position coach, uh, that you, you know, it's going to take a while to send like nine guys to the pros, but uh, if you go out and, and land a, a few four-stars in, in one year, you're already on people's radar, uh, you know, other head coaches' radar, so... Well, I think I think deploy when you talk about deploying and developing, that's when you you look more at the coordinator hires. That it, it doesn't happen right. often, but uh, Dan Mullen at Mississippi State coming at, as the OC at Florida. Um, gosh, I'm trying to think of more off the top of my head. Um, yeah, I mean that's a good point though. Like the the deployment side, especially, you kind of have to be a coordinator to prove yourself, and the, as a position coach, you can prove yourself as a recruiter very quickly. Yeah, I think the, you look at key coordinator positions at certain kinds of programs and certain institutions, like. You know, Mike Stanford getting the the Western Kentucky job based not off of obviously what he did last year at Notre Dame, but the, it's a high profile situation in which you're you're looked at. And then if you if you have really any kind of success, you're going to get noticed more so than anywhere else. So it changes as you go up the ladder. I think a good rule of thumb, and this is a generalization, but a good rule of thumb is that if you're grabbing one of these jobs, if you're if you're grabbing a major job, you're coming from somewhere like AAC, you're probably doing it more for the talent side. And a little bit of the actual results, and then I think if you're coming, if you're a guy who gets a job as you know your coordinator, it's because and it, I don't want to say like a certain you know doing this gets you this kind of job. I think it's program specific, mm-hmm. right? Like Texas was the things Herman did at Houston made him fit so well at Texas, but that was also by design on Herman's part. That's why he took. I mean, if you ask some people, that's why he took the Houston job in the first place. Right. To, if not get Texas, get something very similar to Texas. So, um, if it, you know, there are other jobs I'm thinking off the top of my head. If you want a Big Ten job, you know what? I think Fleck falls into the. It, it, so, if Fleck was less about the recruiting only because what are you going to get to Western Michigan on National Signing Day, right? So, before Row the Boat became a cultural meme and all that stuff, was anyone talking about Western Michigan on signing day? No. I mean, I, I, mean, I was in there because right. he was, because he was uh, out, I mean, he was drastically out recruiting everybody else in the MAC, but that's still just the MAC. But I that guess. was at a certain point when no, he I started mean, out. Right out of the gates. Right out of the I mean, he went 1 on 11 and then signed like a top 50 class. Like, he really, yeah. he hit it. 
pretty you, hard. And I think but what I'm saying that there's a, there's a difference between the the ceiling of talent you're going to bring into Western Michigan, the attention you're going to get for it. you're going to get attention in coaching circles for it. But I think what got him the job was was then I think this year got him those jobs. I think it wasn't yeah. him recruiting well at Western Michigan is not what got him the Minnesota job. I think it was the full soup to nuts kind of concept of going undefeated and playing pretty well against a, a really really good Wisconsin team. Yeah, I mean, it took, you know, it took him four years to, you know, even as a recruiter from the beginning, it did take him four years to to, to get a head coaching job. So there's something to be said for that. All right, Bill. We're going to go. Yep. I have to go to another convention. I've another one. To, uh, go make lunch. Ooh, I'm going to do and that too. Up, and pick up the dog from the groomer. Uh, we'll be back next week, either Wednesday or Thursday. No one tweeted me about a preference at all. <laughs> At all, you can find us on Instagram at SBN underscore Bill C. You can find me on the Twitters and the Instagrams at 38Godfrey. Um, I'll be better about my Instagram, I promise. Maybe I'm not. Still, I'm still looking for a reason, for, for, a, for a way to use Instagram other than posting food pictures when I travel. Bill is going to come back next week with a big old feature, the uh, top 100 games of the 2016 college football season. That's probably going to take up our entire show next week as we break those down. <laughs> Um, and that'll also be a good start for me to figure out since I didn't see about 80% of the games that were played last year. Um, I can start watching them on YouTube. Uh, Bill, you want to come back next week? Absolutely. I can't wait to talk about that New Mexico State-Louisiana Lafayette game. Hell yeah!